Greetings. This is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and you've found your way to my new podcast. The podcast is called The Gospel Comes to Life, and it's time to get started. This week we are addressing the third Sunday in Lent, and that will find us in John chapter 4, in verses 4 until verse 42. This story is unique to the Gospel of John. It's the story of Jesus's wonderful encounter with a Samaritan woman by Jacob's well in a village called Sychar. Now we walk into the gospel with a verse that's not going to be read in liturgy, and that verse is verse 4 of John chapter 4, and it reads as follows, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. In point of fact, he didn't. The journey from Jericho to Jerusalem is shortened appreciably by passing through Samaria. But you can also take a much safer and more well-traveled route along the eastern edge of the Jordan River or a longer journey along the Mediterranean seacoast following the famous Via Maris or the Way of the Sea. Both of those routes will lead you back to Galilee. In point of fact, Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he wanted to exit Jericho quickly and put distance between himself and John the Baptist and his followers. Uh, The heat is beginning to uh, rise in regard to John the Baptist and his challenge to Herod about Herod taking for his wife and naming her his queen, his own brother's wife, and obviously without his permission. John is consistently challenging Herod in the region of Jericho where there are numerous royal palaces dotting the landscape. And I would imagine Jesus knows now the time is right to return to Galilee as quickly as possible. Doing so, we read that he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given his son Joseph all the way back in the book of Genesis. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. Now, the well is still there, and it's still in Samaria. Samaria, in the time of Jesus, was populated by Samaritans, and they had been a population and animosity toward Judeans and other Galileans for the previous five hundred years. In point of fact, by the time of Jesus, you were allowed to pass through Samaria if you're leaving Judea heading northward, but would be forbidden uh, by Samaritan officials from making the return journey from north to south on your way to the temple in Jerusalem. This is because the Samaritans had built their own alternate temple on a site in the shadow of Mount Gerizim, where they would offer their own sacrifices in concert with those that are offered by the faith-filled Jewish community in Jerusalem. Those particular sacrifices continue to be offered even to this very day in the same region of the land of Israel known as Samaria in the time of Jesus. So knowing that there is a potential conflict that could come about because of your presence in Samaria, we would imagine then that Jesus and his entourage would have camped out somewhere distant from the city of Sychar 
and would have arrived at the site rather early in the morning. A well would be situated outside the city gate so that you could effectively and easily water your beasts of burden, your camels, your flocks and herds without risking defiling any part of the city beyond the gate with any kind of animal waste. The idea being that this would also afford an opportunity for people to engage in active conversation, and that seems to be what will be about to transpire. Now, we know, because we're familiar with the gospel, that before Jesus engages this conversation with this woman, his disciples have been sent into the city as the gates open to secure food. They'll purchase it from local homes and bring it back for a breakfast meal. So the disciples exit the scene, and as they do, a woman appears approaching the well where Jesus remains seated. That woman, unnamed, comes to draw water. Oddly, because women draw water collectively in groups and then in the late afternoon or early evening hours of the day. The congregation of women typically gather around the well and share the stories of their day and allow the children to enjoy frolicking about. The fact that this woman arrives at the well site alone is a signal that she is a social pariah, a persona non grata. There's something unique about her that excludes her from the company of other women, and she arrives additionally without the accompaniment of a male. And so, in that sense, she is an unattached woman who should never be spoken to publicly in order to honor her status in this particular situation. Well, Jesus, countercultural as he often is, will have none of that. And he engages her directly with a question. Give me a drink, he asks. And the Samaritan woman, in reply, responds, How can you, obviously a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, and a woman for a drink. The vessel that she would pro-offer to anyone that would contain the water is porous clay, and the fear would be that there would be a defilement as a result of association. Additionally, she knows that she is a social outcast without a male to protect her, a son, or a uncle, or a brother, or a husband, and so she would assume that no self-respecting Jewish male would engage her conversationally. We read parenthetically in verse 9 that Jews have nothing in common with Samaritans because John is writing his gospel for a community of faith far distant from the land of Israel uh, that would not be aware otherwise of these particular circumstances. So, because she engages him as she does. How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, and a woman for a drink? Responds to her response with a challenge. If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him first, and he would have given you living water. Now, living water is much to be preferred over the water of a well. And the immediate understanding of the woman 
when offered the possibility of locating living water, would be most likely that Jesus knew of some place outside the city where a spring was located that no one else had ever discovered. And perhaps he would be willing to take her to that site so that she could draw the fresh bubbling waters off of the surface of the ground much easier to access than the deep well that she would otherwise have to draw from. So, having engaged in that way, the woman responds and says to Jesus, Sir, a term of respect, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> this well is deep. Where then can you get this living water? You seem to know where it is. Again, a well is sourced from artesian springs deep under the surface of the earth. Perhaps one of them has broken through nearby, and I would love to know where it is. Now, she challenges him. Do you think you are greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and in fact drank from it himself with his children and with his flocks again, all the way back in the book of Genesis? And Jesus responded to her, now engaged completely, you know, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now this is typical Middle Eastern hyperbolic speech, exaggerative by its very nature, the mother of all battles, the greatest show ever, that sort of thing. But he's speaking about what she believes to be a sure and steady source of fresh water that will be very easy to access and that will allow her then not to have to bear the shame of coming out to this well by herself on a daily basis each morning. So, the woman responds in verse 15, Sir, again, speaking respectfully to Jesus, give me this water. That is, show me where it is, so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw the water. Now, remember, she had recently mentioned that the well is deep. And when I visited the site, and you can, the well is where it should be located and is as deep as she suggests. Back in the early 1980s, having lived in Israel and touring the land all the time, we came upon Jacob's well, and at that time you were allowed to take a small pebble, one per person, and hold it over the opening of the well and drop it in. And it would take about four seconds before you heard the steady kerplunk at the base of the well. Now that practice soon came to a halt because everyone was allowed to do that. Very soon, the well would fill up with those stones. But I can attest to you, the well was deep in 1983 and certainly was as deep or more in this particular time of the Gospel of John. So, she is intrigued. Sir, show me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water ever again with the shame associated by my pariah-like status in the village of Sikar. So Jesus says to her, I'm ready. Go call your husband and come back. Because as odd 
and unusual as it might be for us to have this engaged conversation without benefit of a male chaperone. I can't possibly leave this location with you unattended. You need to be protected by another male family member. Now, the woman hearing this rolls her eyes. The Bible doesn't say that, but it's obvious that this is the intention of the narrative because her response to him is as follows. I don't have a husband. Do I look to you like a woman who has a husband? If I had a husband, I wouldn't be drawing water in the early morning hours by myself. You know who I am and the kind of woman I am, and I am aware of that, most certainly. And Jesus recognizes her honesty. When he says, you are right in saying, I don't have a husband, I understand. For I imagine you've had five husbands, and perhaps the one you have now is not your husband. That is the man who you are drawing water for. He completely understands the role that she has taken as a paramour of someone in that village, and this has precluded her from an opportunity to be part of the general ebb and flow of the woman in the village. So he says to her, I know what you have just said to me is true. And he honors her in that exchange. Now she wants to quickly change the subject because this has become far too personal. And so again, she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. You know, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, referring to Mount Gerizim, nearby the village of Sikar. But you people, meaning you Jews from Judea, say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And again, that is something that separates you and I. And if you are a prophet, you're part of that tradition, not my own. She tries to change the subject into something theological and also contentious. Now, Jesus will have none of that. He speaks to her lovingly. Believe me, when he says, woman, the hour is coming when you will have to worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Because you people, meaning the Samaritans, worship what you do not understand. You're misguided. You've gone astray. But we worship what we understand because salvation, the plan of salvation, the sacrificial system as part of the plan of salvation is from the Jews, not from the Samaritans, a people who have Jewish blood coursing through their veins, but it is commingled with pagan blood as a result of intermarriage after the time of the Babylonian captivity. Now, I want to address the fact that Jesus, in verse 21, says, believe me, woman, the hour is coming. We might otherwise imagine Jesus to be speaking down to her. Believe me, woman, he would say, the hour is coming. But in point of fact, the word woman in the New Testament narrative and from the lips of Jesus always means my dear one. It will be used by Jesus when he addresses his mother in John chapter 2 before he completes the first public miracle, the transformation of water to wine at Cana. And it will be from the cross in John chapter 19 that he will speak to Mary, his mother, and call her yet again woman when he tells her that her care 
will be now taken up by John, the youngest apostle. So it's a term of endearment. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey to this Samaritan. And again, he goes on to say in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here or nearer than you can imagine when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Indeed, he says, the Father seeks such people to worship him. Now remember, God's plan of salvation revealed to the Jews and that plan of salvation involving animal sacrifice that is properly taken to Bethlehem, uh, to Jerusalem is intended to honor God the Father. And that's the in common element that the Judean Jews and the Samaritan Jews would agree upon. And so Jesus says again, the Father seeks such people to worship him because God is spirit, he says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the response of the woman is magnificent, and it's still a response that's used among men and women of the Jewish faith tradition to this very day. Because hearing these words of Jesus, the woman responds to him by saying, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called Mashiach, or the anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. When you reach an impasse, and you know you won't agree with the other party with whom you are engaged in argument or conversation, you bring things to a conclusion by saying, well, I don't know if you're right or you don't know if I'm right, but the Messiah, when he comes, will, and he'll make it clear to all of us. There's a wonderful story that's often shared among guides in Israel, because if you've traveled to Israel, or perhaps will with me someday, one of the first questions will be asked on the bus after your arrival is, is this your first visit to the land? It's an important question, because if there are people in the group who have visited before, then the guide can lean into them and show in comparative and contrasting regard how things have changed over time. My wife traveled with me recently uh, to Israel, and when that question was asked, she raised her hand. And our guide, Ike, determined that she had been away from the land for 30 years. He was delighted because he had an opportunity then for the next 10 days to point out all of the changes that had taken place, and all of them for the better. Well, the joke is, of course, that when the Messiah comes, be it for the first time or from our Christian perspective, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, the tradition is that he will appear on the height of the Mount of Olives. And when he does, some enterprising Israeli guide is most certainly going to greet him and ask that very question. Is this your first visit to the land? And when that question is answered, the Messiah then will answer all the other questions. That's what she's insinuating now. I don't feel comfortable in this conversation. I'd like it to stop. So I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is the anointed. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus, hearing this, says to her, I am he the one who is speaking with you right now. You're in the presence of the Mashiach. She can't 
believe it. And at that very moment, his disciples happened to return and were amazed, and you now understand why, that he was talking with a woman. But still no one said, what are you looking for? Or why are you talking with her? Remember, among those who returned would have been John, the youngest of the twelve apostles. He's an eyewitness of this particular event. It's a story included in his gospel and his gospel alone. Well, upon their arrival, the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I have done. Again, speaking exaggeratively, this man has insight into my life that is keen and unique and accurate. He is most certainly a prophet. And as a prophet, could he possibly, she wonders out loud, be the Messiah? And they went out of the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples, while she's away, urged him, Rabbi, eat, look, the food we've procured is ready for consumption. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Now, hearing that, some of the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat before we arrived? And Jesus said to them, no, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you say in four months the harvest will be here because the rains have come and softened the earth. You've scattered the seed, you've planted it, and you just wait for it to grow into maturity. He says, I tell you, look up, literally around you, and see the fields ripe for the harvest, which would suggest that this time of year would be in the late summer months. But the reference, of course, is not to the wheat that needs to be harvested, but rather to the souls, even of Samaritans, right, that are ready to be brought in. The reaper, Jesus continues, is already receiving his payment and gathering crops for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. Jesus knows that this woman will become an evangelist telling her story. Already, men from the village have made their way out to Jesus because of her insistence that she met a man who told me everything I had ever done. And she wondered aloud, could he be the Messiah? They were intrigued. And so they come out and greet Jesus, the Galilean Jew who had come to their village from Judea. And they are intrigued as well. Jesus goes on to say, for here the saying is verified. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you are sharing the fruits of their work. And bringing the narrative a conclusion, John reminds us that from that time on, many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him because of the word of the woman, because of her testimony, because of her engagement with Jesus that she shared with them, the woman who testified. He told me everything I have done. And because of that, she came to believe that he was a prophet. And then further, that not only a prophet, but the prophet, and therefore the Messiah. When the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them. They offered him hospitality. And he stayed there two days, the rest of that day and all 
of the next. And many more began to believe in him because of his word. Remember, the ministry of Jesus is one of healing and preaching and teaching. So we have to imagine all three aspects of the ministry were on display in Sikar, and they eventually said to the woman, we no longer believe because of your word or only because of your word, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is long before Peter's pronouncement that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16. They come to this realization within the early months of the public ministry of Jesus. That is not at all an insignificant fact. That Samaritans were in the fold very early on. And consider this as well. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus imagines in his creative storytelling ability a parable in which the hero, rather than being a Jewish layperson, is actually a good Samaritan, a non sequitur. No one thought good Samaritans existed. And yet, obviously, in the parable's storyline, a priest, a Levite, fail in responsibility, and a good Samaritan arrives on the scene and acts to bless and comfort and care for this otherwise tortured fellow who had fallen in with the robbers. Where did he come up with the idea of a good Samaritan? Well, from this two-day stay in the village of Sikar, very early on in his ministry, as he makes his way from here northward into Galilee. So that brings a gospel of the third Sunday of Lent to a conclusion. I want to remind you that you can find out more about me by visiting me at my website, the ArizonaBibleClass.com. And if you are so inclined, remember that I have my Bible and I'm willing to travel. So if you have need of a presenter, an Advent or Lenten mission, or a Bible seminar that you can envision and that I could serve in as a speaker, please let me know. You see my email address or you can find me through the website as well. But for now, that's all the teacher has time to do.